if anything, this movie, it's more current than ever. It sounds paranoid, right? Like, it's, it, I, it, I know. It sounds, it sounds almost like paranoid, but at the same time, like, we know that this are already happening. You know, America's spying on all, all Americans, you know? Mm-hmm. The, the ear is listening to everybody today. It's, Don't need communism for it, that. No. <laughs> time I hear that theme tune of ours, I can't believe how heavy we made it, but gosh darn it, <laughs> I like it. <laughs> so, I'm Karri, a Finnish person who has somewhat studied and doubled in audiovisual works, but most importantly, we have a guest here, Martin Kessler. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I think this should be a great conversation. <laughs> and my co-host Henrik is there somewhere, lurking, up-and-coming master of arts. Uh, still, still here. Still here, some, somehow. Counting as being present. Somehow you're able to withstand me. Yeah, so you have dabbled into everything on this earth, from eye sculptures to music videos. And yes, I'm not going to give you any rest on that music videos debacle, so <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to keep mentioning it. And today's topic is the ear. What is an ear, Henrik? It's a, it's a organ in, in human being. Yeah, it's we a, used to listen to this very podcast at the moment. Apparently, according to uh, the Encyclopedia Britannica, it's an human ear is an organ of hearing and equilibrium that detects and analyzes sound by transduction. Which is something that apparently the Czechs never actually checked out because they don't have Encyclop- Encyclopedia Britannica in Czechoslovakia. That may be a problem. Kaka, Christ, guys! All right, let, let's get to the real topic. So. Let's talk about Martin Kessler. So who is Martin Kessler? Um, I'm a filmmaker, podcaster, all-around movie person. I like to talk about movies. So yeah, happy to be here. (laughs) Yeah, I've seen you've uh, contributed to quite a few podcasts, I understand. Yeah, I I like to do podcasting. I don't really have my own show right now. I just kind of go from podcast Mm. to podcast. But uh, I appear on uh, Wrong Reel pretty frequently. I'm on the Pink Smoke podcast pretty often. That's kind of my home away from home for mm-hmm. film writing. Um, I'm over on Film 89 somewhat. <laughs> I should be on more, but uh, maybe that'll change in the future. I think in terms of podcasts I have upcoming to look forward to, on uh, The Pink Smoke, I just recorded an episode on Quest for Fire, mm. the uh, Jean-Jacques Hannault caveman movie with um, poster artist Tony Stella. So that's a really fun conversation. Where are you from? What did you study? Oh, um, I mean, I have a Czech background, um, which I've heard some people say like, oh, Martin's a Czech movie expert. And I'm not. (laughs) I've got got a Czech background and I like movies. So those things are, (laughs) I I don't think they quite add up to being a a Czech movie expert, but uh, I'm happy to talk about this. Lived in Canada most of my life, and uh, I went to York University for film production. So that's my nice. resume, I guess. <laughs> nice. And yeah, it was just somebody I can't re- recall any anymore, but it was a couple of years ago when somebody in Reddit or wherever was recommending uh, you to come to the show to talk about Czech films. So I was like, oh, all right, let's follow this guy on Twitter. And uh, yeah. That's how. I'm glad it finally happened. <laughs> yeah. So that's basically your relationship with Czech Republic or Czechoslovakia by extension. Uh, do you frequent Czech Republic or those parts of the world? I haven't been there for a long time. I think last time I was there was in maybe 1999. So um, I'm, uh, I'm I'm pretty pretty Canadian, <laughs> but uh, I still I travel a lot. But uh, I haven't really been back to Europe for for quite a long time. Instead, I've, I've gone more to uh, East Asia. I've been to uh, China, Taiwan, and mm. visited Hong Kong and a few places like that. Mongolia um, oh. was pretty interesting. Uh, and the United States, of course, since it's the neighbor to the south from where I am. So, And so you do film essays of sorts and other artsy endeavors. Do you want to say anything about those? Uh, sure. Yeah, I... Um, Earlier this year, I did a 
longer three-part kind of history of the King Kong franchise for Film 89, where I kind of get into the uh, the good, the bad, the ugly of King Kong uh, throughout the years, the last 90 years. I have an upcoming series I've been writing for The Pink Smoke, which discusses uh, architecture in science fiction. And I look at a couple different films and artworks and uh, even a video game. Uh, I talk about stuff like Last and First Men and George Lucas, his uh, first film, THX 1138, a couple things like that. So that should be pretty interesting. Um, I also have other essays and things for the Pink Smoke. Like um, I think I'm, I'm kind of known for uh, a series I did about Alexei German, the Russian filmmaker who made Khrushchev uh, on my car and Hard to Be a God and my friend Ivan Lapshin, all these great masterpiece films and uh I even wrote about a Czech film for that site, uh, Attentat, which is about killing high-ranking Nazi Heydrich during World War II. It's a it's a true story. And there's a couple film adaptations about that. So I kind of touched on the other film versions, but mostly focused on Attentat. So if folks enjoy this conversation and they want to read something I wrote about uh, Czech film, that's maybe the best one to check out. And you've already discussed Uho or the ear in the Protection Booth podcast back in 2019. So, yeah. Yes, I, uh, I'll try not to repeat myself too mm. much. <laughs> and you have contributed to this Flixwise podcast. You've been co-producer. I, I think the podcast yes. is on a break now. Yeah, it's, uh, it's on indefinite hiatus. <laughs> it's maybe the best way to phrase it. I don't know. There might be more in the future. Um, but as of right now, it's sort of on pause, yeah. And unfortunately, I do not own the Blu-ray version of Uho. I have the DVD version. I understand the Blu-ray version of Uho the Ear has a crisper uh, picture quality, some new restoration version. And then I also understand that your voice is on that very disc. Is that correct? Yes, so so uh, the actual episode is, uh, I suppose, in some, some kind of a cut form on that disc. How did that come about? Um, well, I guess we recorded it with that in mind, but... Um... I should say second run. They didn't give me a Blu-ray copy, though. I had to go and buy it. So. Ouch! <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was it was pretty fun to record that conversation. I, I was nervous because uh, you know if you put it on a Blu-ray, everybody could listen and listen again and again. And if you make a mistake, it's out there forever. Versus you know some podcasts, it's a little bit more ephemeral. But uh, I'm like, oh no, the Blu-ray. Like people are actually going to listen to this. Yeah. Um, it doubled as an audio commentary and a podcast episode. All right. So, Henrik, the classic question. Why are we watching this film now, Henrik? Well, for my end, the answer is because you absolutely demanded it as by, usual. by holding a gun to my head. As usual. <laughs> as usual. Yeah, this has been on the pipeline, I guess, coming this movie to the podcast for several Years when I watched this film for the first time, I was always kind of struck by its vi visual language and how it got me feeling. So I thought I should come back to this project in one way or the another. And what better way than this podcast, of course? Henrik, uh, history of the movie. Shall I go or? Well, I think Kari, you you can start, and Martin can correct whenever you get something wrong. <laughs> me? I'm uh, I'm the orator of facts here. Uh, well, history is a factual science, so go ahead. <laughs> yeah, this is based on a novel by Jan Prochaska, directed by Karel Kahunia. Karel Kahunia, I understand his father was a government officer. And Karel himself, he studied cinematography and directing, and then directed socialist realist propaganda documentaries, and then apparently got kind of tired of that, and uh, then went the other way. And then during the normalization period, he did several politically critical movies. All of them were banned after the uh, Prague Spring. Um, some were made before Prague Spring. I kept wondering how did this film survive all of those times, but here they are. And um, as far as I know, the other films have survived, survived as well. Yeah, it's... Um... I mean, it was locked away for 20 years. I'm surprised it was completed. I would have thought hmm. uh, during the Soviet invasion, it would be maybe destroyed or, you know, I, I guess they basically locked it away thinking nobody would ever see it. And then finally, 
you know, after the Velvet Revolution and the collapse of communism, people could finally see this movie, uh, which is, I think, one of the reasons why I never saw it until relatively recently. Like, I think I saw it for the first time maybe in, I don't know, uh, 2018, something like that. Like, it's not one of the films I grew up with. It's not, you know, one of those kinds of Czech movies like uh, Daisies or, you know, there were a couple of those that were sort of films that I was very familiar with in this one. I hadn't even really heard about it until, yeah, I guess a couple of years ago. <laughs> I mean, I knew Prokaska and Kakaina. They, they'd written several films together. They'd collaborated for a number of years and uh, they had quite a few films they'd made together. Um, I mean, like Coach to Be and I, I always think of as probably the most famous one. That's That one's considered a classic, but uh, I think this is probably the most interesting as far as coming at it from the point of view of artistic background, their political background, and just kind of how it gets into the minutia of uh, totalitarianism. <laughs> There's quite a lot of paranoia here. Oh, for sure. Henrik, maybe we just ambush you and ask you just point blank, what did you think? Um, I'm kind of two minds about the film. It's it's a good film, most definitely. I don't know about groundbreaking film without its legacy as as a movie that was banned in Czechoslovakia for 30 years. For, for me, Uko, Uko is kind of a case where by having seen X number of Soviet cinema, you, when it comes to like, in, in a lot of, lot of analysis and talks about the film, people point out uh, the cutting and the way how the story is being told, how the flashbacks are being introduced, how the sound operates in the film, how you have a scene, you you get a sound, somebody says a line which doesn't fit the scene and then you realize that, oh, it's actually, the, the, the line comes from the scene after where the film goes into a flashback. And, or, or that that is an effective moment to experience. But after after seeing enough Soviet cinema, you kind of see these tricks often enough that they kind of lose some of some of their glamour to you. And with that, you're kind of left with a film that you really like which and a film that you agree is really good, but you don't exactly see how the sound editing or the or the cutting is is so revolutionary to somebody else. You are kind of looking at it from the perspective, oh, I've seen that. That's the Soviet filmmaking being Soviet filmmaking once again. Is this one of those cases again where you went online and saw a lot of praise for a movie and then you watch the movie and you're completely disappointed when it's not meeting your expectations? <laughs> it, I, I'm, not, I'm not completely disappointed, but yeah, that is the case. Yeah, yeah that's a bad bad habit, habit of yours. <laughs> it it is is it has ruined a number of films for me. At the same time, it's also a habit that is extremely hard to avoid, especially when you are a film podcaster. It's it's kind of hard to look a movie that you know that you are going to be making an episode, and then still have the opportunity to go into that movie blind. That comes with the job, I guess. You watch so many movies and you could just get a little jaded. Yeah. But I, I hear where you're coming from, though, because I I think anytime people try to sell something as uh, revolutionary or doing it for the first time, it's like uh, something's probably done it better and years before. Like, that's almost yeah. always the case when people try to sell like, oh, this is the first film to do this. I mean, I don't I don't really think that Uko does anything that I would consider revolutionary uh, technique-wise. I think that's more just the language of the filmmaking at the time. I mean, Kakina, he wasn't really in the Czech New Wave. He was sort of the generation before that. But, you know, he got started with the socialist realism and, you know, style kind of developed out of that. So I think, like, it's not really so much the technique or the style, but I, I think they work very well as far as exploring this particular story and the paranoia and the subjectivity of what what did I say at the party? What did they say at the party? And trying to go over in your mind what might have been a slip up or what might have been an insidious statement or an innocent statement, that sort of thing. I think, you know, it all works very well. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think yeah. that Uko is is more interesting, is, is a film that is more interesting in what it's saying 
and in a, kind of the heart of the film than in the technical aspects of the of the making of the film. Mm. Then again, I <clears throat> I do feel that it's 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 extremely extremely well paced and there's a lot of meaning or uh, intention attention to to the cinematography. It looks fantastic. I mean, especially yeah. I think of those scenes where they're going around the dark house and he's got the um, candelabra or the lighter and you know it looks very uh, gothic horror. It looks almost like a Baba movie or something. <laughs> and then you know you contrast that with the very brightly lit scenes of the party and then also the kind of relief when it's finally daylight at the end when it's like four or five in the morning and the sun's coming up yeah when i was watching this film on the technical side of things do you think that the actors were miming or kind of silent shooting mute shooting when for example they're at the at the ball or however we should call this occasion and during those times especially you want to avoid something controversial in terms of your dialogue publicly, so you might want to do the recording in studio or post. I mean, it could be that. It could also just be the limitations of, uh, mm. you know, the the amount of sound at a party. <laughs> it's sometimes hard to, yeah. you know. I I think it it might be that. I think it might also just be that the way that those scenes are done are meant to be from the uh, subjective point of view. And when you're talking to somebody at a party, you drown out the other sounds. And I, I think it works very well just having. The voice of the person speaking and everything else is kind of eerily quiet. It, I think it's uh, it's more maybe about the mood and that feeling of that they're speaking to you than trying to create something that uh, sounds like an authentic party while it's really happening with a lot of noise and a lot of chatter in the background, that sort of thing. Right. Sometimes this miming is done in an effort to record the background noise and then do the speech later. I mean, a lot of uh, party scenes and stuff like that, they have to be done either post-sync anyway, or yeah. else it's funny when you, you go on set sometimes and you see these party scenes being shot and, uh, you know, you have to tell all the extras basically just to mime their, <laughs> their, their dialogue and everyone's kind of faking, making noise. And then you do that post-sync and kind of create something where you can actually hear the actors. But, uh, yeah, it's it's sort of funny what you choose to do and what you need to do sometimes to create a certain soundscape that feels either authentic or stylized or whatever approach you want to take. But uh, rarely do you, you know, shoot a party where everyone's like talking at full volume, where you have dialogue that the audience is supposed to hear. Yeah, it goes double for older films because back in the days when, for example, Uho was made, the recording equipment really was not on the level that it is today. Meaning that, once again, you have to, when you have, for example, a party scene, you have to make the, the sound landscape more more as a piece-by-piece piece collection of sounds, rather than as a all-around during the shooting recording session. Right, I, I think that's a very good point. And, like, you know, you don't have the same kind of dynamic range that you do today, or the ability to create soundscapes with all these extra layers when you're doing the editing. So, you know, there's restrictions and what you could do but i think you look at what a lot of the artists did at the time and there was a certain focus and specificity and thought in how a lot of them created these soundscapes that i really admire i think like some of that care and thought has been lost today when you can do you know as many tracks as you want digitally and mix it down and that sort of thing i, I think you know in some ways the limitations brought out interesting i artistic decisions I do actually agree with you 100% on that notion. I do think that when it comes to sound recording on movies, and also quite often, in my opinion, post-processing of the sound recordings in, in during the editing, it is uh, worse in in a lot yes. of today's movies than what it was... Uh, no noticeably worse, yeah. <laughs> back, back in the, the 60s, and etc. I mean, it's sort of funny. My sound teacher, when I was learning sound recording and editing he said the real test of a good sound mix and good sound design isn't when you have it play in a theater that's perfectly calibrated and you know everything's ideal and you have uh, you know all these different tracks that you can play he said it's it's if you mix it all down to mono and it still works <laughs> so i always think about that you know <laughs> if if i'm creating something that if i mix it all the way down will it still work in mono 
So that's maybe maybe the big test if uh, if you make a good sound mix and good sound design. Right, right. There's kind of this candle lit and very many minimal lighting scenes, which is perhaps kind of impressive. Also kind of impressive the the scene in the bathroom that I believe is during the ball. Actually, this kind of Casino Royale-esque bathroom scene. And it just got me thinking that, yeah, it gives a really nice contrast that, that bathroom white background versus the character, especially in black and white, as they did in Casino Royale. So that was a scene to behold. Next, somebody's going to tell me that, yeah, 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 but there's 250 million other movies that do exactly the same <laughs> thing. Are you trying to tell me that this movie invented contrast? No. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's a couple Czech films, I think, like, use that contrast in the black and white really effectively. Like, um, yeah. uh, The Cremator is, is one I always really like. It's the sort of horror story during World War II, uh, during the German occupation, about this Czech guy who joins the Germans and becomes homicidal. Uh, but, you know, th there's a lot of use of contrast in that that's really interesting. Or um, there's a Slovak film, uh, Shop on Main Street, I, I think of where um you know most of it's it's very dark and gloomy and then you get this sort of um imagined ending which is very overexposed and w one of the creators of that film ended up becoming a professor at uh in in america and one of his students was david lynch who made eraserhead and i think you know if you look at uh eraserhead how it uses contrast mm. and uh, the professor's name was uh frantishek daniel but uh he was one of the people that stood up for that. So, like, I always think it's kind of interesting to see that lineage going from something like Shop on Main Street and the Czech New Wave films into an American filmmaker like David Lynch and how he uses light and dark in his movies. It's always really interesting to me. Overall, now that you offered us the connection to Lynch and and his his teacher, I do think that overall, like Eraserhead, is a film that where that takes. I don't know if it's if it's a budgetary decision from Lynch's end, but it looks a lot when it comes to filmmaking conventions in Eraserhead. I see a lot of similar type of conventions to old Czech and Soviet movies of the like, yes. of the, like like twenty to thirty years before Eraserhead. I think so, and again, also in the the soundscape, you know, not, not only with the visuals, but. Um how he develops and textures those sounds uh, in the film, I, I think is, you can see some kind of connection there. Um, maybe also with, you know, some of his later films too, but I, I think Eraserhead, is, it's obvious because he's still learning and figuring things out as he's making this. Is there anything you want to point out more about the, the storytelling of the movie? I felt that it, it, it starts really quickly. We get the introductions out of the way in a few seconds and it kind of starts to unfold like like a flower let's say that you're not given much context you you just have to figure it out by yourself which in fact kind of goes nicely with the concept of uho you are as an audience also the kind of eavesdropper in the movie and you just have to figure it out figure out the pieces on the way so yes uh, i mean there, there's a lot of details in the film that at one point it seemed like it's just there paranoia these two characters and then later it turns out to be that you know maybe they're not so paranoid but mm. it's it's tense and it's exciting when you know you're not sure what what's imagined what's real and then later on when they have to think back oh we found a bug in this room what did we say in this room and you know you as an audience you have to think back and kind of imagine all the incriminating things they said and eventually of course it turns out that like every room has a bugging it um yeah. you know there, there's listing devices all over and you know there's there's an interplay between what they're dreading and then what happens and then it flips that around and then flips it around again like i think a good example is when they hear the ringing at the door and they think it's people there to take ludwig away to prison and his wife's up his pajamas and yeah. uh you know they're they're worried that like you know this is the yeah you know, the proverbial knock at the door that you're going to get taken away and purged. And then it's just his drunk friends and they're there to party. But then it turns out that the drunk friends are really there to finish the uh, planting of these listening devices that was interrupted when they came home earlier in the film. So it's a flip. 
And then, you know, you get this idea that, oh, no, they heard everything we said, all these incriminating things. And then it flips again where it turns out, well, you know, they heard everything and you're getting, you're getting a promotion. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you're not going to get killed for it. Um, and I don't know. We can talk a little bit more about that later. But uh, I, I just like, you know, that storytelling of... Um, you know, you think it's going to go one way, then it flips the other, then it flips the other, then it kind of goes back and forth like that. Yeah, I'll just I'll just say this bit that had they put the mics or all of the mics at the beginning of the movie, then probably Ludwig's situation would have been way worse. But I'm not so sure I should watch this movie a couple of times more to to check on what they were actually talking in <laughs> their respective rooms. I mean, for for my interpretation i i think pretty much everything they said is is heard you know i think more or less um even if the bugging wasn't finished at the very beginning you know you as an audience hear everything that they say and you can uh, interpret the the ear the instead of the all-seeing eye it's the all-hearing ear <laughs> uh, catches basically everything that they say and the payoff the the meaning of all of this is that uh, he's exactly the sort of person that they want in this regime you know that they don't want somebody who's idealistic and who has convictions they want somebody who is weak who is compromised who will go along with whatever they want him to say and who they have dirt on you know i think like that's more valuable than somebody who uh would have actually had real convictions and real ideology behind closed doors somebody like that i think would have been purged so yeah. I, I think you know that's sort of the idea of, of this film and that gets into why you know why you do have these weasels in these sorts of totalitarian regimes you know of all sorts of different political ideologies you know and usually like you look at the history of you know these regimes in the 20th and 21st century and like the the true believers are the ones who get it the worst you know like you know you think about Mao or Stalin or you know even Hitler like you read about the SA purge and you know uh Ernst uh Rom I think his name was getting killed you know it's like the people who actually believe in these <laughs> these yeah. uh, ideologies are the ones who end up getting killed because you know they have ideals and you know even if they're uh, messed up ideals their idealism is actually a threat to these sorts of uh, authoritarian regimes, fascist regimes, communist regimes, whatever it is. I mean, have you seen the the movie The Joke? It's uh, based on a Milan Kundera story. Unfortunately, not yet. That That's a really interesting one. You might want to check out if you want to okay. watch more bleak Czech movies from around <laughs> this time period. But, you know, in that story, like the the character gets in trouble for making a... a uh, a political joke basically that lands him in this like work camp and and the guy who gets it the worst in the work camp is like the one who was like the real the real genuine communist <laughs> like the real true believer communist is the one who gets picked on and brutalized and you know he doesn't really understand but like i always think about that and you know i think it's an interesting contrast to this film where you have this character who he's been in you know a weasel throughout uh the last probably his entire life i mean like you know there's references uh to i think his wife says like oh you know you danced for benish who was the czech president before the nazi invasion and you know you sang for gottwald who was the stalinist era chairman of the communist party and um that's a guy who famously died like i think four or five days after stalin's funeral so people always joked oh he he caught whatever stalin had uh a bunch of those guys i think all died like you know a couple days after of course but um you know, the character Ludwig, he's somebody who went from, you know, basically regime to regime, just playing along with whatever the prevailing party line was. I mean, he he basically only married his wife for her money because he wanted to start like a capitalist factory, you know. And then there's even, I think, like maybe a couple of illusions that he might have been a Nazi informer or a collaborator during the war. So, like, you get a sense that he's somebody who just kind of goes along with whatever whoever's in charge and he has no real conviction, no real ideology. Um, that's exactly what makes him valuable to that kind of system, that totalitarian system. I mean, I, you know, I've been thinking a lot, like this past year, there were a couple films and things that were exploring this idea of like, what you know, what does it really mean to not have an ideology? Like, um, 
have you guys seen the uh, movie Oppenheimer, the Christopher Nolan movie, yeah. uh, biopic? Like to me, you know, that was all about a film of like, you know, what what does it mean to be a creator without an ideology, and like what what are the consequences of that? But um, I don't know. It's just been something that's on my mind <laughs> for the past while, and uh, you know what what things are worth having a philosophy for or having convictions on and uh you know what what does it mean if you don't what what is the consequence maybe to society if you don't have uh an mm. ideology a real true ideology i don't know <laughs> just uh that's that's where my mind was at watching this again i, th I think bringing up the risks of having such communist ideology was the what was in the mind of the director during the making of the film but while I was watching it, I was also kind of thinking that, hey, it would be kind of interesting if, if the director would play the ambiguity game a little bit longer there. I mean, of course, we still don't know really what the heck is going on until the last seconds of the movie, but it's quite obvious after 15 or 20 minutes that somebody is after them, somebody is yeah. tap tapping them, etc. I think you're right. Like, it could it could get even more into that territory of the paranoia and not sure what's real or not, or what's uh, what, what they're just imagining or not. Although like a part of me is really glad that this movie's, you know, hour 35 minutes rewatching it. I was like, you know, if it was like a two hour long movie or something like that, it'd be like, Oh, I don't know if I want to be in this world for that long. But um, <laughs> I, I think you're right that like, that's something that could have been elaborated on and it would have been very interesting. I, I suspe suspect that the decision why it perhaps becomes so obvious for us was that when the director was making it, he was banking on the, the audiences kind of suspecting that the truth is something else than what he's hinting at throughout mm. the film. Like by giving these strong hints that they are being listened to and, and they are under surveillance, the audience would automatically e expect that. The, the final twist is that they actually weren't under surveillance. It was just accidental happenings. It's, and and I, I kind of suspect that that was where the director was banging on. That's why he starts to hint towards the truth so early on. Because he's kind of counting on that the audience does not suspect that he's playing with, with open cards from the get-go. And they are like banging on the, the thing that there will be a final twist. Mm. What about the whole government relationship with Ludwig and the couple relationship? Did you, you know, see see any kind of similarities there? Both are about to hit the brink. The relationship with the government. But both and are the very couple. toxic. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, it seems pretty significant that the movie it's set on their anniversary. Like it's, mm. you, you do get this um, collision between the the personal and the political but I, I think you're right that like there is some uh, correlation or some kind of metaphor between their interpersonal relationship which is this sort of very dysfunctional back and forth with the with the government as a whole so yeah I, I could definitely see there being some some metaphor or connection there that goes kind of beyond the obvious yeah well what came pretty obvious at least was that Ludwig is kind of the the monster creation by the system and then that system is also affecting the the marriage marriage and yeah both are you know contributing to the situation that they are now in and was once again a certain kind of structural violence going on here i i don't know how much ludwig in the end is a product of the system i i, I got very much that he's kind of a victim of the circumstances a guy who's trying to survive in the environment i mean i, I think he's a a symptom of the system or byproduct of the system that it kind of pushes people like that into into positions of authority you know i think like you know I, i'm not sure he's if he's necessarily created by the system but i think the system is designed to weed out people who are not like him you know mm. yeah but i kind of like that that's my reading also upon Ludwig, like uh, I, I saw Ludwig not as as a victim of the system so much, or his his nature not stemming from him being a victim of the system. But like going off from what Martin said, the film hints in in throwaway lines 
around the possibilities that Ludwig would have taken part in numerous totalitarian systems, a possible Nazi, Nazi collaborator, worked at, at least with two regimes uh, under in communism. So therefore, I, I don't really see that Martin has been shaped by any one political system, more or less he's just spineless enough to kind of weasel his way into different totalitarian systems and being just slimy enough that the totalitarian systems that he comes in contact with would be kind of awarding him based on the person, the type of person that he is. Weasel, yeah, but I think like he has a survival instinct. (laughs) He's just trying to survive. But I I took him more as a... uh, Basically, just accidentally lucky fool. Okay. Most of his his the the big big games, the big plays that he has made during his career, they have all failed. He marries marries his wife in order to to get the construction company and and the money, but to like the mo- wife remarks to create a capitalistic system. Well, that obviously went fucking nowhere. He failed that. <laughs> He tries to be a corrupt government official, gets caught. He can't really even destroy the damning evidence, messes that one up, tries to flush official documents down the (laughs) toilet, and eventually just manages to get the toilet seat caught fire. So he's he's more of a buffoon who goes through these situations. And at the end of the day, you know, just because he's a slimy buffoon, the system decides that, okay, we are going to reward you. Yeah. Well, speaking of elements, speaking of water, also waterboarding his wife on their anniversary, basically. Not not, not really waterboarding, though. <laughs> no. The, the the wife wife can still pretty well breathe. I'm not saying I'm not saying that that's not not abusive. I'm not declining that that wouldn't couldn't be counted as as a torture. I'm just you know. I'm drawing the line on on the term waterboarding. There was discussion that, or or the wife was suggesting that oh maybe you will try to drown me next. That is the... uh, that. Yeah, yeah. That the, the fi- wife uh, does make the remark, but Ludwig never actually makes the attempt. But how big of a bag of reproductive organs is Ludwig? After all, like, is it really confirmed that what what was going on with? Him and his brother. Did he really murder I mean, his it's, brother? It's pretty strongly hinted at that you know he he's probably responsible for his brother's death. Maybe reporting on him because his brother. Yeah. I think they mentioned he fled to England during the war. So yeah, he was on the you know on the wrong side on the western side, and um, you know it it doesn't give you the details exactly, but it's enough to strongly hint that he's responsible for his brother's death. Yeah. There's that. Uh, anything else you want to say about the paranoia part? There, it kind of starts with the wife nicking the orange, and then they're already looking over the shoulder. Probably not about the orange, but you know there are these misdeeds they do. Then they arrive at the house. There's a peaking phone being cut off. No lights. Lost keys. Door is locked or unlocked. Not sure. Did I lose? Uh, lock it or what? And uh, then shouting these obscenities at the officials to the mics or actually so loud by the wife that you know everybody would hear it burning paper flushing it down the toilet or or, or not quite getting it flushed down <laughs> <laughs> it, it always makes me think of even though i i don't think there's any way coppola could have seen it it makes me think of that scene in uh the conversation when the blood comes up out of the toilet <laughs> but uh, yeah i i think like in terms of the paranoia i mean that was kind of the reality for a lot of people living under under Czech communism, you know, I mean, this is still before the Soviet invasion, when the film is set, I mean, it was being made during the invasion, but, mm. uh, yeah. you know, the, the period when it's set, it's just a little bit before. And like Prokazka, I think like there's probably a strong autobiographical element to this because, you know, he was friends with uh, Novotny, who was the president of Czechoslovakia before being deposed in the Prague Spring. And, um, you know, like supposedly he even had the nickname President's Pet. He, he was like buddies with them uh, or, you know, a, a pet to him at least. Uh, and 
Prokaska, he was kind of complicit and he wasn't critical when he had opportunities to be, you know, he had some leeway because he was friends with the president, but uh, he only really became outspoken when things started to crumble. So I think like part of the film is maybe the sort of self-critique of his own moral weaknesses or something like that, you know? And I think like, you know, the paranoia is coming from a pretty authentic place. I think, you know, when you are that close to power, it becomes very dangerous and you probably do think about getting that knock on your door at four in the morning all the time. You know, can you imagine, can you imagine being close to power and, and sleeping well at night? <laughs> you know, I can't, but right. well, you didn't even need to be close to power. Like even everyday citizens can yeah. be, like uh, absolutely, in, but uh, but but uh, you know, being close to power, it 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 doesn't help. <laughs> you know, like it, <laughs> it really does kind of increase your chances of of something bad happening. And you know, if you were, yeah, you know, regular people had it miserable too. But uh, you know, it's it's sort of the difference for a lot of people between like you know, getting locked up for making a joke or not being allowed to take your family on vacation because you said something to the wrong person versus you know, getting purged out of existence so you know i think like you know there there is a certain kind of paranoia that came with the entire regime for everyone but you know it's definitely concentrated when you were at that level where uh, you could easily be a target if there was a different faction or if you say the wrong thing i mean like in this film there's scenes where you know you have the russian talking to him saying like, like oh like can you can you pour concrete in the winters? No. Oh, we can't. It's like, you know, did he just say the wrong, like something totally innocuous is that like, did that just put him in the wrong camp? Did that, you know, just put you in a place where you're an enemy or did you ally yourself with the right person or the wrong person? I mean, you know, I, I wonder how much, how close he was to his boss. Who's just been purged that they, they reference and who's eventually promoted into that position. But, um, you know, did he have a role in in that happening with his report? He kind of tries to distance himself, but then you get these hints that, like, actually they were pretty close. So, you know, I, I think, like, it is more dangerous when you're more visible, when you're closer to more powerful people, when you're in these positions, uh, than when you're just a regular, <laughs> regular schmuck. Hmm, yeah, I, I, absolutely. I mean, at the end of the day, or at the end of the film, the reason why Ludwig gets promoted as a minister is precisely because they now have all the dirt on him which and they can later on if they cho so choose or if need be they can make Ludwig their patsy and just yeah. sacrifice yeah. him I mean a lot of these regimes you know the create systems were like anything is a potential infraction that you could get in trouble for you know there's there's a lot of like minor crimes that you know everyone kind of commits that you can get in trouble for that they can quickly you know, turn around and use to silence you if they need to, you know, it has less to do with uh, any kind of like law enforcement as, as just like a silence and tactic. But, um, you know, there was also the, there's that element of criminality, which I, I think is kind of interesting that comes along with the people in power, like even just um, stealing the, the beets from the garden and the wife says like, oh, at least they left the cabbage, <laughs> but uh, you know, at least they left uh, Zelly, but it's um, it's this idea that also like everyone was a crook. They were stealing and stealing from each other. And, um, you know, I, I think like some of these lines about, hey, you know, is your house warm in the winter? It sounds very innocent, but it's like, you know, was she being asked that because the person asking thinks that, hey, maybe I want that house when she's gone. <laughs> you know, you can kind of interpret things in a lot of ways that are are uh you know not not so friendly <laughs> but uh, and you know it also makes me wonder too like you know who who owned that house before they did before ludwig um you know right. somebody did but uh, yeah well and like uh, j just to like connect it to another czech film like i, I think um milos Forman's movie the uh, fireman's ball was sort of a famous one where you know i always think of like uh, everybody stealing in that and the metaphor of that being kind of extrapolated to the whole society but you had like even the firemen were stealing in that movie when they they turned off the lights and say hey put put you know whatever you took just put it back and then they turn the lights on and like even more stuff stolen but uh, you know i think like it's also a system that like encourages people to be crooks so yeah i mean oko is uh is interesting in the sense that it today it's 
once again, kind of topical because we are getting these yeah, reports yeah. and we, we are surrounded by this conversation. Is is fascism perhaps once again rising its head around the wor- mm-hmm. world and are like the Western democracies, are we heading slowly towards more totalitarian, more fascist regimes? Not only fascism or totalitarian it's it, it's also very pertinent when you think about the the, the whole internet age and the mass collection of yeah data. sure yeah and what kind of what people in my opinion often should remember when they th- think about fascist and totalitarian systems is that those systems by default they are self-cannibalizing yeah. yes the the rewards you get for succeeding in those systems. They usually, like, looking at at uh, Soviet Union, looking at, at uh, Nazi Germany, the rewards were stuff taken from somebody else. And yes. the, the systems themselves were depend upon, dependent on the idea that there was constantly an enemy somewhere. Someone was out to get the system, and through the system someone was out to get you. So... Uh, communism and Nazism, what, what have you, uh, totalitarians and fa- fascistic systems, they always they, they always have to find the enemy from some place. Somebody has to mm. be the patchy for, for the regime. And when you eventually run out from the natural enemies, whatever those, those are... You turn on the, yourself, the, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Eventually it is you and it's your closest friend. It could have been the yes. director as well. I mean, they did lock up the film, evidently, and didn't burn it down uh, in some kind of a bonfire. So they they definitely used it as uh, something that they can go back to and then put him into trouble for that. No, like I, I think it is relevant. You know, even though it's talking about specifically, you know, Czech communism in the '60s, this is relevant to I think so many different regimes, uh, both throughout history and even today. And I think today, if anything, like the capacity for this has accelerated with how much we're all listened to and observed, you know, I mean, now you don't even need a, a van outside your window listening. Now it's, it's like you have algorithms filtering through if you say the wrong thing or on social yeah. media. And, uh, you know, I, I think like there's a capacity to make an even more extreme version of this, but, you know, it's so true what you were saying about these totalitarian regimes turning on themselves. Like, yeah, I always think, you know, the movie, uh, downfall, about the Hitler in the mm. bunker, you know. I, I always think like that's that's a good film as as showing like uh, a microcosm of Nazism, where it's like like it couldn't have ended any other way. They all had to like kill themselves, and you know it, it was such a suicidal ideology that um, you know I think some some people today don't necessarily understand that these regimes, you know, they know they're bad and all, you know it killed a lot of people and that they're destructive, but they're also flawed ideologies because they're so self-destructive you know i'm not sure people really understand how they were flawed as systems not just that they were you know killing lots of people you know that that, that there's something fundamentally broken in how they're structured and that you can't like you know you can't have totalitarianism divorced from that uh, genocidal suicidal kind of (laughs) mindset it it comes with the territory you know and here's your mandatory mention of north korea in this episode north korea might be one of the <laughs> or the only country in the world that is still able to you know jucha uh, self-reliance they... <laughs> yeah to control the population to that extent population basically don't have don't have access to the internet so that's a powerful tool of manipulation <laughs> I don't know. But I think now having access to the internet is maybe also, but <laughs> but like having access to the internet is now a tool for manipulation also because the information we have access to is filtered. It's controlled by algorithms. I mean, now people talk about like astroturfing and things like that, where you have things that appear to be grassroots, but really somebody's paying a lot of money. So you can have you know either a political opinion or a commercial opinion or, you know, whatever it is. Like, yeah. I, I think like in some ways we're, and I'd include myself in this statement. We're not fully aware of how much our views and opinions are are manipulated by by uh, rich and powerful people. You know. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, the the, the say, statement when when made, it sounds almost like 
Consp- it sounds paranoid, right? Like it's, I, it, it, I sounds, it sounds almost like paranoid, but at the same time, like we know that these are already happening. Yeah. Uh, the hedge fund companies do use, for example, Reddit's Wall Street bets as a as a trading ground these days. Mm-hmm. So it's it's or, not. You know, like... you think of like Snowden finding like, mm. oh yeah, like by the way, we're you know America's spying on all all Americans, you know, mm-hmm. uh, sort mm. of uniformly, and you know it, again, like it, it's like the the ear is listening to everybody today. It's don't need communism for that. This isn't just in the past. No. Yeah. Kind of to, I guess, do some kind of rap on the movie on my part. Uh, I think it really well encapsulated or captured the, the sense of con- confusion at the time, whether you're a re- rich person or, you know, just a regular person. You're trapped. There's, I don't know if there's anything to that, but there's quite a few references to different countries. I don't know if you could draw the conclusion that that's kind of the characters themselves also dreaming of other places than Czechoslovakia, like Hawaii is mentioned, and I don't know, yeah. but it's yeah, it's making spite of the party behind their backs and kind of two ways, distrust, claustrophobia, and suffocation and but do we want to move to the quickies? Oh, sure. <laughs> yeah, before Sounds I... Fun. <laughs> yeah, but hey, a special mention for an actor goes to... Henrik, do you want to start? Uh, from my hand to Irina Bohdalova, uh, but yeah. absolutely butchering the last name here. But uh, no, you, you got it pretty good, uh, Bohdalova. Yeah. She, yeah, she's fantastic. She's still, I think she's still like acting. She's in her yeah. 90s and she's still showing up in things. She's like kind of a comic actress, but she works really, really well in this film, I think. Yeah, I was checking the pictures of her and oh my, my, still, still rocking it. Uh, 92 years old. And my choice is also, uh, I suppose it's Yezina Bodalova, her name. I think that's an excellent pick. I, I mean, I got a shout out to uh, Brzo Bahati because he's, you know, he's he's an actor who I always really like. And he's in the film Attentat, I mentioned earlier, but um, usually he plays these more heroic type characters. So it's it's interesting to see him play somebody who's so pitiable. And I think he's, you know, it's a great duo in this film, really. It's, it's almost... It's yeah. almost stage play like, and that it's the majority of the film being driven by just this couple. Um, I know, like some people have kind of compared this movie to "Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf," but it has a little bit of that feeling where it's it's like these two actors being very intense with each other and playing off of each other really well. But Martin, she is heroic during this movie. She, well, okay, I don't know if she did well, her own stunts, but she, <laughs> well, she, when she climbs she, yeah. she thinks he's uh he's about to kill himself and you know maybe he would have but uh his gun's been taken away when all those uh yeah. guys acting drunk came over but uh you know they're, they're it's a miserable toxic relationship that they have but she loves him still so yeah props for stunts lady or whoever did that thing <laughs> uh what worked from my end to, to name one thing, uh, the best thing, the, the thing that worked the most was the sense of paranoia. Yeah, uh, I'll go with similar lines. Yeah. At- atmosphere, I'll just say atmosphere. I, I, I agree with you both, yeah. <laughs> what didn't work? I think, uh, I, I kind of agree with your point earlier that it could have gone a little bit further into the ambiguity at the beginning and what was, what was just... Um, imagined paranoia and what was a real threat and just kind of play that up and get a little bit more uh, ambiguous and confusing. I, I wouldn't have minded that. <laughs> I guess I'm going to contradict myself a bit. I would say more ambiguity, but less ambiguity. Because there's okay. a, a, a lot of lines during the film where you just don't know really exactly what they're referring to, who they're talking about. You know, of course, you get familiar with the names throughout the film, but there are moments where you're just not maybe quite sure, sure what they're talking about. But yeah, I mean, it comes with the whole experience of eavesdropping, so what the heck. For my end, it's a purely a question of of taste and opinion. I'm not saying that my taste or opinion is is right here, but like the, the closest parallel that I can find... I, or the, the film that I immediately th- thought when I was when I had watched Uho was the 2006 German film from Donnersmark called The oh, Lives yeah. of 
of others, which touch upon the Stasi intelligence yeah. apparatus operating in more about how the intelligence apparatus operates. Because with life of others, you with with the lives of others, you get kind of a, a similar type of situation that you have in Uho. You have a couple who come under the suspicion that they are they are under surveillance by the state, and life, the lives of others is very blunt and open about the situation that yes that that is what's happening and that film kind of follows it follows both the couple and it follows the the intelligence officer task with the surveillance so you can kind of see how they are actually surveilling the couple and i was thinking that how uho would have worked if we would have also been in the similar way if we would have been shown more of the tools and the trade and how the intelligence gathering works around the couple. Like I said, uh, um, it's a it's a question of taste. It's a question of opinion, and I mm. can't say I can't be sure that it would have, wouldn't in the end hurt the film. There's abso- an absolute possibility that that had they had the director tried to to also show how the intelligence gathering works, it would have, uh, well uh, it would have at least made the film most likely longer and perhaps it would have damaged that, that tone and tone and the sense of the movie completely possible but that's like the thing that i was thinking about what this movie would have been if there would have been also more of that side have you guys seen the that is also in the is in the wikipedia's see also references there's honey night 2015 is this supposed to be some kind <laughs> of a remake it's yeah, Macedonian remake. Um, I haven't seen it, but I, I saw the trailer and that seemed like too much already. <laughs> it was like <laughs> this sort of overwrought drama. I'm like, I, I don't know. But I think you could remake this film fairly easily for a different setting, different time period. Um, so you're saying, though, that maybe it was the right choice to not have this as a versus episode, like Honey Night versus... <laughs> <laughs> I think that's probably a good good idea, yeah. <laughs> it's like a... It's like Mike Tyson boxing a baby. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, describe the film in one word, please. Can be adjective or whatever. Uh, despair. Documentary. Paranoid. All right. Will this film survive the test of time? Well, that's uh, that's a question. I hope so. I, I think it already has. Like it's you know a film that that could have easily gotten lost in like. Ah, it was never released, and it got released twenty years later, and uh, you know, it's this like film out of time. But uh, you know, I think the fact that it's still around and people are still talking about it shows that it's still relevant and it's still interesting. Yeah, I think this film definitely needs more exposure. That's what we're also on our part doing here in our tiny podcast. So, uh, Henrik. Yeah, I I side with Martin, basically, exact with the exact same arguments. All right, well. Here's the fun part. Complete the sentence. You really know you're watching Ucho. When? When your friends show up for after party and upon leaving forget all their listening devices behind. <laughs> you really know you're watching Ucho when you can't tell the difference between the telephone and the front door. <laughs> <laughs> you really know you're watching Ucho when you can't lay concrete when it's cold. Or when your minister has been knocked out cold with some concrete, perhaps. was a lot of references to concrete during the movie. And I was also <laughs> wondering, like, what the hell is this concrete talk here? Well, gentlemen, did you like the film? I mean, it made me miserable, but I like it. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it didn't make me miserable, but I still liked it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe on the first watch, I was a little bit unappreciative uh, about the whole ambiguous nature of the film, but then I started to uh, appreciate at least some of it. And there's, like I said, there's a lot of background drop that is never so much explained, some of it, but that kind of works in the eavesdropping way and strong visual style and like a panicky menace. Would you ever rewatch the film? Sure. I, I this is a rewatch, so uh, yeah, I'm sure I'll rewatch it again. Probably, uh, mm. I, I don't know if it'll be for another podcast, but I'll, <laughs> I'll I'll watch it again sometime. I'm sure. Yeah, someday, most certainly. Yeah, 
someday somehow. There's a lot of movies in this world, but uh, I don't oppose to watching it again at all. And I would go and recommend it to someone who wants to get some touching point on Czech cinema or Czechoslovakian in this case. Uh, would you recommend Ucho? Uh, I, it might depend on the person a little bit, but uh, I think so. I would recommend it. Yeah. yeah. I, I too, I would give a recommendation to Ucho. Uh, like we already talked about, it is a movie that is kind of politically topical in, in today's day and time. A lot of movies were name dropped in today's episode, which are now politically current to watch. Uh, it kind of comes with the whole surveillance film genre territory. They are all prominent now. Uh, but that even though the, the topicality, even if it applies to quite many movies, it still does not take anything away from Uho and how topical that this movie is. So by all means, yeah, I would say that people should actually check the movie out, especially today. Alongside with that, of course, you know, also check out The Lives of Others, check out The Conversation, mm -hmm. check out the other movies that we have mentioned today, but make certain that Uho is also on the list. It is pretty good take on what it can feel like, like the, about the paranoia that you may feel when you are living under these type, type, types of systems, when you are living in a system that can whenever necessarily just put you under surveillance. And that's something that kind of affects all of us today. Yeah, yeah. I, I would even say that because of how it so well kind of encapsulates that whole psychological perspective of the time, maybe it should be something to be, I don't know, mandatory is a strong word, but I think it maybe <laughs> it should be something to watch in yes. Czech or Slovak schools. Clockwork Orange, the, <laughs> the movie to people. Just <laughs> yeah. Well, if, if nothing else, it's a movie that kind of shows you exactly how easily you can say or slip out something that can then be used against you or taken in, in a wrong context against you. And that's something that applies to you also to every post you are planning to make on X or Facebook or what have you. <laughs> Excuse me while I go delete some old tweets. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And because this is so topical even today, when you think about all those mass surveillance of people online that we already discussed, then you kind of think to yourself there that how much exactly have we moved on from the surveillance apparatuses of the communist era? And yeah, for example, China is doing just fine and dandy there. Where they have apparently this surveillance appar apparatus called Skynet. I kid you not. So, mm -hmm. so every citizen nowadays, they're being passively tracked with whatever means possible, digital phones, computers, surveillance cameras, and who knows what else is there. So, Well, well they also have the societal scoring system. They do. Where your rights and, and your abilities to take part and be active in the society can be taken away based on your societal, societal score. So it's, it's very much like Uho actually, where they also pit your friends and neighbors against you because, you know, you can raise your mm -hmm. own societal score by giving your friends and family away. Yeah, the, the Chinese mm, social system, governmental system is what it is, but you could say that China is kind of on the forefront of, of testing all this relatively new technology and people kind of tend to use the technology that they have available to do to them. So, as we have already seen from Edward Snowden's revelations, etc. So, yeah. So, if, if anything, this movie, it's more current than ever. Yeah. That's, that's true and that's sad, I, yeah. <laughs> I think. But, yeah, I agree, yes. Any closing thoughts? You get something to say or... <laughs> Shall we start closing the laboratory? Oh, be careful what you say, I guess. 
Hey, amen to that. We can at least kind of avoid this bullet and throw it to our listeners' direction. What did you think, dear listener? Did this episode provide any value to your life? Or did you find a meaning to your life from our podcast in one way or the other? Tell us all about it. And if you think this content is obviously life-changing and really valuable to you, then you can rate us on Apple Podcasts. You can drop us a few coins on Patreon. But yeah, thank you for our listeners. And Martin, where can people find you? Uh, thank you so much for having me on. If you ever need a, a last-minute guest, feel free to give me a shout. <laughs> uh, folks can find me online. Uh, I'm on Twitter, at Movie Kessler. Or I guess uh, it's not Twitter now, but you know what I mean. Yeah, and, um, yeah it's that's ba- where ba- I... basically it's always Twitter. <laughs> it's still, I still get a little burn on my, my icon. I... <laughs> but um, yeah, that's where I post podcasts and film projects and writing and stuff like that. And uh, but, you know, feel free to mute me when I just tweet about, like, Resident Evil 2 for a day straight. <laughs> I got the remake, so I was playing that, but... Um... No, no, it's a great game. Oh, oh I love it. I'm, I'm having a fantastic time with that. But uh, I, I, I can just see, like, the number of likes I get when I tweet about stuff like that. I'm like, I'm sorry. <laughs> I know. But uh, aside from that, I do tweet a lot about film and GIFs and stuff like that. So folks who want to check out what I've got, that's the place for it. Martin Kessler, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for taking part in our podcast. Uh, Anytime, seriously. He, I can't really even destroy the damning evidence, messes that one up, tries to flush official documents down the toilet, and eventually <laughs> just manages to get the toilet seat caught fire. So he, he's, he's more of a buffoon. Yeah, Martin has been watching some Finnish cinema lately, or has some Finnish cinema in his shelves. I, I do apologize for you. <laughs> <laughs>